Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. For the next two episodes, we're considering imagined scenarios relating to the future of health, all of which appear in our annual supplement, What If?, which appears in the Economist edition of July the 3rd and online at economist.com slash whatif2021. This month, we'll explore the growing risk of deadly heat waves and ask what can be done to mitigate them. This is something that many cities are doing very little to prepare for, and that could come back to bite them in the decades to come. And we'll also consider whether dementia might be treatable or even preventable in future. More and more evidence is emerging of what sort of lifestyle factors increase the likelihood of developing dementia. Climate change is altering weather patterns around the world. Ice caps are melting, violent storms are raging, and heat waves are becoming more frequent and more deadly. Millions of people here in Europe have been sweltering in this summer's second extreme heat wave. The oppressive, stifling heat wave searing the West is tonight delivering some of the most dangerous temperatures of the year. A heat wave in India has meant even the roads have melted, and the heat has now claimed 1,700 lives in just one week. This isn't a theoretical danger, it's happening already. There are heat waves going on right now in Siberia and in the western United States, where temperatures reached 54 degrees Celsius in Death Valley in June. And in recent years, heat waves have killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world, mainly over 65s who were particularly vulnerable. For our first look into a potential future, The Economist's Dylan Barry imagined a scenario set in 2041 that describes how two different cities respond when a devastating heatwave lasting several weeks hits southern India. We look specifically at 2041 and work out what would happen if things got really bad. How bad is the problem of heatwaves now and what do we expect to happen in the coming years? Well, it it depends when you're looking at. So as early as sort of 2003, you had 70,000 people at least die in a European heat wave. But uh, in 2018, 296,000 people over the age of 65 died as a result of heat waves. In that case, India and China were the hardest hit. Those two regions of the world are likely to continue to to bear the brunt of increased uh, heat waves. So what is it that makes heat so deadly? There are two things. The first is that heat can kill you directly through heat stroke which tends to be fatal through organ failure, or it can kill you indirectly. And there's an interesting analogy here to COVID-19, where people with pre-existing conditions and the elderly are at much higher risk of things like strokes or cardiac arrests when heat is high. But the real feature of heat that is worth noting is it's not simply heat on its own, it's, it's the combination of heat and humidity. So there is a measure called wet bulb temperature, which is a sort of combined measure of heat and temperature. The way it works is that any body of air that contains some moisture, there will be a temperature to which you can cool it at which that moisture will condense. And that, that temperature is called wet bulb temperature. 
now at, at wet bulb temperatures of about 32 degrees Celsius. Most outdoors manual labor becomes unsafe. And if you're exposed to uh, wet bulb temperatures of about 36 degrees for about six hours or more, your body loses the best available option for it to, to shed heat, which is by sweating. And uh, as soon as the humidity is above a certain level, your sweat stops evaporating. And that's the mechanism through which sweat cools you down. Now, tell us a little bit about the actual scenario, because this is a sort of classic economist thing. You're comparing the responses of two cities in India to this imagined heatwave. Yeah, exactly. The idea is that you've got these two cities. And in the piece, it's the city of Hyderabad in the, in the state of Telangana and the, the city of Chennai in the state of Tamil Nadu, both in sort of the, the middle to, to south of India. And the idea is that one of the cities, in this case Hyderabad, has done very well at preparing for heat waves and mitigating heat in the city more generally. Uh, whereas the other, Chennai in this case, has done very little of that and suffers the consequences when a really deadly heat wave hits and kills several thousand people um, in 2041. And is this actually true in the sense that is Hyderabad a leader when it comes to taking action to mitigate the effects of heat waves? So yes, there was a deadly heat wave in India in 2015. Uh, in that heat wave, about 580, 90 people uh, died in the state of Telangana, which Hyderabad is the capital of. And that was a real wake-up call for both the state and the city. And since then, Hyderabad has begun implementing some very interesting heat mitigation policies to try and prevent a, a, a similar occurrence uh, in the future. So what are the sorts of things that a forward-looking city can do to mitigate the impact of future heat waves? The primary issue for cities in mitigating heat is an effect called the urban heat island effect. And this basically comes down to the fact that uh, in cities you've got a concentration of roads and buildings, lots of concrete surfaces, not a lot of vegetation or water features. What that means is that cities are very effective at trapping heat. Now, the challenge that cities face in mitigating heat is to try and counteract that effect. Now, you can do that in several ways. The main way that Hyderabad has experimented in so far is by trying to make city surfaces more reflective. The idea being that if you reflect light away, reflect heat away, the city ends up trapping less of it. And one of the things explored by the city of Hyderabad was a cool roofs pilot program. The idea being that uh, they set aside sort of a single low-income neighborhood and started experimenting with putting reflective roof coatings on houses. And they discovered that that actually made a very significant difference to indoor temperatures, reducing them by about two degrees Celsius. Since then, that was a very successful pilot. Um, the, the state of Telangana has been working towards a sort of statewide program. Okay, brilliant. So that's something that's actually happening. And you imagine more of that having happened. But you also imagine some other measures that the city can take. Another way is, is by planting lots of trees in cities. And now the way that trees suck up moisture from the ground is by evaporating moisture from their leaves. And in the same way that when you sweat, that cools you down, the evaporation from, from trees and plants' leaves cools down the surrounding air. So some cities are, are, have been very effective at this. I come from Johannesburg in South Africa, which is one of the leafiest cities in the world. And it has had a, a couple of programs by the local government to plant millions of trees in the city. But there are other experiments too. In China, a couple of cities are experimenting with trying to organize their city planning around things called wind corridors. And so they look at what is the prevailing wind in the surrounding area. Um, and they try to work out how can you design the city so that wind flows through it the most easily, taking away smog, but also taking away heat. Climate change is something we know is going to happen. Lots of countries are trying to cut their emissions and if all goes well we ought to get to net zero somewhere in the middle of the century. Will that solve the problem? 
So the trouble is that even once we reduce our carbon emissions to zero, there is such a lag in the response of the climate to emissions. Temperatures are going to continue to rise for a long time. And that means that rising frequency and rising intensity of heat waves are likely to be a problem for much of the world, for much of the rest of the century. And this is something that, that many cities are doing very little to prepare for, and that could come back to bite them in the decades to come. We're not alone at The Economist in imagining how deadly heat waves could shape humanity's future. Science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson depicts a devastating heat wave in India in his latest book, The Ministry for the Future. It's a novel set in the near future that explores the relationship between climate change, technology, politics and economics, and imagines how things might play out over the coming decades. I asked him where he got the idea of using a heatwave as the starting point for his novel. I began reading in the scientific literature about the wet bulb temperatures rising high enough to kill humans if they were not protected by air conditioning. So, in other words, you could be indoors, in the shade, without your clothes on and a fan on you, and still the combination of heat and humidity would be enough to kill you. And that I found shocking because I had gotten used to a cultural movement adaptation, it was often called, that humans were tough and that climate change was something that we weren't really coming to terms with in terms of decarbonization, that we weren't decarbonizing fast enough, that temperatures are going to rise well past the two degree a sea limit set by the Paris Agreement and the IPCC, and that was okay because people were so adaptable. And then suddenly this finding came in and we realized that we weren't so adaptable. We have a discrepancy here between what we think we can do and what's real. And I looked around more in the literature and just found the situation as it stands. We are on the verge of uh, creating heat so hot that humans can't live in it. Now, people tend to think of the climate crisis in terms of sea level rises or droughts or maybe the impact on agriculture. So these are rather slow moving problems rather than the direct danger that it could could pose to health, the case of heat waves. So do you think it's going to take a disaster like the heat wave you described to spur governments to take more rapid action? Or is it mainly just a dramatic way to open the book and explain the scale of the problem? Well, I would hope the latter. And when you ask this question of will it take a heat wave? Well, we're talking about it now. And people seem to have a tremendous ability to imagine that whatever happens elsewhere in the world won't happen to them. So I could well imagine, and indeed I described in my novel, a stupendous deadly heat wave in India and the rest of the world continuing on, noting it as one of those disasters that happens elsewhere. So I think it's the discussion. It's a, a matter of rhetoric and persuasion and of education of a working political majority in this world to get to that point where everybody understands that we are creating a deadly danger and we need to act. Now, just opening things up a bit, your books are rooted in real science and technology. When you're imagining how science and technology might develop, it strikes me that we can imagine you know, what better rockets might look like or better computers. When it comes to biomedical advances, which do appear in many of your books, the range of possibilities seems much broader. So how do you think about that? Well, I mostly think about longevity which is to say lifetime extension. So average lifetimes have gotten longer. We already have longevity. But I'm thinking now that it's the biomedical community pressing 
by way of science and technology against a barrier that stiffens as we extend it out so that there might be some kind of asymptotic curve at the top in which the advances that were made by public health and by dealing with what you might call the easier problems of early death in medical terms, in biological terms, have been solved. So we see average lifetimes advancing quite remarkably through the 20th century, and but kind of then leveling off. And so the push for longevity is really just a push for general health. And I mean, I'm like a lot of people of my age, I think. I'm um, nearing 70. I wouldn't be alive at all if it weren't for modern medicine. So this average lifetime thing is not just an abstract number. It's a lot of people alive who wouldn't have been. And I guess that's the way to conceptualize it. The whole notion of cyborgs, or which we are all often cyborgs already, but superpowers that, oh, we could become even better than human. I, I think this is a, a science fiction mistake, that the imaginary ought to be directed at what can be done and at better health of the ordinary human lasting longer. As human lifespans grow, so does the prevalence of conditions associated with ageing, such as dementia. It's a debilitating and frightening experience, and as it progresses, it saps mental agility and eats away at memory. People with severe dementia become incapable of looking after themselves. They lose the ability to read, cook or shop. They become incontinent or forget to drink and get dehydrated. They may suffer delusions, become frightened or angry, or sink into an apathetic slump. People with severe dementia often end up requiring round-the-clock care in specialist care homes, like this one on the outskirts of London. Good morning. Good morning. All right, Tony? You had your breakfast? Yes. So, my name's Gemma Weldon. I'm the home manager at Park Avenue, which is a nursing home in Bromley. Good. No worries. The way we designed it was because the post office is a conversation starter here, so a lot of our residents can relate to the post office. So every time they're down here, it's like, oh, the post office, and some residents will come in and put their post in that post box there if they can't take it to the post box across the road. So I think for, for me, the way I try to describe dementia to families or even when I'm delivering training, it's just to give people an understanding that it's a set of symptoms and that people experience when they're living with dementia, such as memory loss, problems with planning, thinking, um, not being able to understand risks. And obviously there is different types of dementia. So I suppose dementia is the umbrella term for the different types of dementia that are out there. Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia. Most people are familiar with that, but there are other, other dementias such as frontal temporal dementia or um, dementia of Parkinson's that people don't really hear about. So, you know, there's other symptoms that come with that. Sometimes there are behaviour concerns. You know, I try to think of it as everybody's an individual. No person's dementia is the same. So it's really important that we get to know their backgrounds and know about them so we can deliver the care specific to that person. In this year's edition of What If, we imagined a scenario set in 2050 in which scientists and doctors have managed to turn the tide on dementia. It is a depressing subject when you look at it that a lot of people have dementia. The numbers are growing all the time because the likelihood of developing dementia increases with age and the world is getting older. Simon Long, the scenario's author, is a senior editor at The Economist who also wrote a special report on dementia last year. But in researching this, I was 
taken aback in a way to, to discover how some scientists now feel that we are at a kind of tipping point in the research on dementia and that nobody expects there to be a cure and nobody expects it to be fully treatable, but that the incidence of dementia can be reduced sharply and a lot more can be done to make it more livable with. Now, you chose to set this scenario in Japan. Why did you choose Japan in particular? I chose Japan because it's the country with the highest percentage of people with dementia of any country in the world because it is amongst the oldest countries in the world. So it is a place where they have been thinking very hard about how to care for people with dementia, about what sort of facilities to provide for them, how to finance the care of them, which is a big difficulty, and of course, how to look after them. So in some ways, it is ahead of the rest of the world in facilities like uh, dementia cafes, which I speak about in the fictional article. They're already there for people with mild forms of dementia to help them stay out of homes, stay looking after themselves, places where they can go two, three, four times a week for a chat to be looked after, to keep them mentally alert to some extent. So some facilities are already there. They've done a lot of thinking about it. It was the obvious place to start. Obviously, you're saying there's unlikely to be a cure that reverses this. But what would it take to turn the tide on dementia? What sorts of other things might make a difference here? Well, there are three areas in which people see progress. The first is that more and more evidence is emerging of what sort of lifestyle factors increase the likelihood of developing dementia. We see this a lot in just in in everyday news stories about how many footballers develop it because they've been heading a ball too much. That's a very obvious one, that if you're in a profession like football or boxing, you're beaten about the head a lot, you're more likely to get dementia. But if you drink too much in middle age, you're more likely to develop it. If you smoke too much, if you're obese. In other words, many of the same sorts of risks that people are told to reduce if they want to limit the risk of developing heart disease, the same sorts of lifestyle changes can limit the risk of developing dementia as well. The second is the development of ways of picking up on dementia earlier, of diagnosing it earlier. And in particular, a blood test for Alzheimer's, the disease which is much the most common cause of dementia, those simple biomarker tests mean that people with a propensity for for dementia likely to develop it can be picked up much earlier and treatments that delivered later on when they're in advanced stages of dementia have virtually no effect might arrest the development of the disease. And thirdly, there is actual optimism that some drugs might be developed that might prevent or cure the disease. During Britain's first coronavirus lockdown last year, many people took part in Clap for Carers. A round of applause every Thursday evening to show support and gratitude for frontline health workers in hospitals and care homes. For Gemma Weldon and her team, it was an emotional experience. I think it must have been the first or the second Clap for Carers on the Thursday evening. And I was sitting in my office and it had been a really tough day. And I, I just heard like this noise, and I, I remember thinking, what, what's that? You know, what is that? And I didn't even realise the time. And I thought, God, that's a bit of an odd news. And I got up, and it was the the clap for carers, and our whole street, our whole neighbourhood here got involved. And I went outside, and I, I, I did. I cried, and people were going, Fuck you, you know, really. It was so emotional and I just got goosebumps and I just, I just sobbed. I remember when um, 
when they start talking about care homes and I think we all just sort of thought, finally, you know, like, we're here, you know. We were quite lucky, but there were some homes that were losing seven people on a weekend or 10 people in a week. And the team was still just getting up and going in and we were just responding, you know. I think there's definitely been a lot of learning from it. The pandemic also affected the way Simon Long approached his imagined scenario. Obviously, I was writing it in the middle of the pandemic, so it was hard not to include that. At first blush, the pandemic has been awful for people with dementia. As we know, it has been one of the highest so-called comorbidities, one of the, the, the most common underlying conditions that people who have died from COVID all, already had. Worse than that, it, it of course tended to divert the entire medical profession towards looking for ways of curing and vaccinating against COVID. So dementia research, which was already somewhat underfunded, suffered even worse. On the other hand, precisely for those reasons, awareness of the existence of dementia and how common and how widespread it is shot up during the pandemic across the world. And that, in the end, did stimulate, as I forecast, a lot more investment, a lot more research, and ultimately a lot more progress on slowing, stemming, and even preventing dementia. Well, all this has been in the news lately for another reason, which is the approval of a new drug for Alzheimer's, although it's not entirely clear if it actually works or not. So what do you think we should read into its approval? The optimistic view that a lot of people in the profession like to take is that this shows that progress is possible, that Alzheimer's, which was first identified in 1906, I think, no cure, nothing that works has ever been found. So that this drug, which in some clinical trials showed some effect in limiting or slowing the development of dementia, of slowing the cognitive decline in patients with relatively mild forms of dementia is seen as great progress. On the other hand, a lot of people point out that the data is very ambiguous, that even the FDA, the Food and Drugs Administration, when in approving the drug, said that it was unproven whether it actually worked. What it is shown to have done is to have quite an impact in removing the build-up of a a protein called beta amyloid, which forms plaques in the brain, and which many people believe is a cause rather than just a symptom of Alzheimer's. But that remains a hypothesis that is unproven. Well, what about other drugs? Are there others in the pipeline that might be more effective? And are there new approaches that can be taken to developing treatments? There are a lot of drugs in the pipeline, of which... Only about 15% are like aducanumab, this drug, uh, directed at beta amyloid. There are others which aim to tackle another protein which builds up in the the brain of people with dementia known as tau. And then there are other genetic treatments which are the most immediately hopeful, particularly for relatively rare forms of dementia which have a specific genetic cause like Huntingdon's disease, like frontotemporal dementia. For these, people are quite optimistic that specific tailored genetic cures might be found quite quickly and that beyond that the science with mRNA medicines and other therapies might move where it can target very specifically genetic-based therapies that would defeat other forms of dementia as well including Alzheimer's. Now it's great to hear some optimism on this topic but are we being a bit too optimistic here? Last year your special report on dementia was rather less upbeat to say the least. I have to go back to my starting point from a year ago when I wrote the the, the special report that having spent 
uh, a few weeks immersed in the world of dementia and of research about it and how it can be looked after, I ended up very gloomy. And nothing that has happened since really changes that idea. I think we are, this is a very hyper-optimistic scenario. If you want to hear more about the new treatment for Alzheimer's, you can listen to a recent episode of our sister podcast, Babbage. Just search for Babbage on your podcast app. All of these healthcare scenarios are imagined, but in each case they're grounded in historical fact, current speculation and real science. So how will things play out? We asked all our guests what they think will be the biggest change in healthcare over the coming decades, starting with Kim Stanley Robinson. I would always want to take it back to the social level. What would be interesting is the utopian thing of universal health care and that everybody have equal access to the best health care available in our time. That would require a massive growth in the number of doctors, hospitals and nurses and everybody in the medical industry, including researchers. Dylan Barry. One of the striking things is that the global population is now beginning to get older quite quickly. And that means that sort of diseases of the elderly and diseases of age are, are likely to become a, a much more significant global problem. And so it, it means that in the coming decades, sort of emphasis on, on wellness and, and care for the elderly is likely to become an increasingly large part of the conversation around public health. Gemma Weldon, care home manager. People are living with dementia a lot younger. I think that can be really traumatic. This is becoming more common now. It's only gonna be on the increase. It's not surprising that people have strokes younger and then get diagnosed with dementia. So I think that would be fantastic to put more money in and research into that. The economist Simon Long. The most remarkable thing to me as a non-medical expert, just watching what has happened during the pandemic, is the development of this technology that I had never heard about before of mRNA vaccines to something that has been phenomenally successful, produced so quickly. And if that can be done for a new virus, for a coronavirus, one wonders what else it can be produced for and how quickly. Thank you to Simon Long, Gemma Weldon, Dylan Barry and Kim Stanley Robinson. And we'll be hearing more from him in the next episode on the subjects of life extension and artificial intelligence. You've been listening to The World Ahead. This episode was produced by Simon Jarvis and edited by Sandra Schmueli. You can read all of these scenarios and much more in The Economist edition of July the 3rd, and you can find them online at economist.com slash whatif2021. If you're not already a subscriber, you're missing out. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>